We're here at the Optima Ultimate Street Car Challenge and behind me is this purple C5 Corvette. This won the competition outright last year. However, the interesting aspect from my perspective is in a sea of cars running forced induction, this is naturally aspirated. We're here with Jake, the owner and driver of the car to find out a little bit more about what makes it so fast. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures and presented it in podcast format for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So Jake, first of all, the engine combination here Forced induction seems to be everywhere in this car park at the moment. You've obviously proven it's not necessary, but what was the driving decision around staying NA? It's really fun to drive NA, and it's a big cubic inch motor, so we still make the power. We went big displacement instead of going big turbo or big supercharger, and it keeps the car light. You know, this is a handling competition at the end of the day. All the segments involve handling, and this car has a perfect 50-50 weight bias at the moment, and if I did have to put turbos or a supercharger, it would affect that. Okay, fair enough. In terms of the power you're making, it's still no slouch. What, what's it produce? Yeah, so it's a Lingenfelter built Eliminator Series engine, about 440 cubic inches, making 800 horsepower at the crank. That's a pretty healthy combination. Can you go into a little bit more detail on that engine combination? What is the sum of the parts there? What, what's it running inside? Sure, yeah. So it's, as I mentioned, 440 cubic inches. It's got a daily engineering dry sump on it, so it's an externally driven dry sump system. Lingenfelter put together a forged rotating assembly for the car, and it's actually still a hydraulic roller camshaft. We're only revving the car to only 8,000 RPM, which for that big of an engine is still quite a bit. But the nice thing about having hydraulic roller is this is a streetcar series. I'm not lashing valves to take the car to dinner, and it's really maintenance-free. I really have just changed the oil in the car for the last two seasons. On top of the motor, we have a performance design intake manifold. The nice thing about that manifold is you can actually change the intake runner lengths really easily. We do a lot of that to change the power delivery. Right now, we have a little more bottom hit than we did last year, and I really enjoy the mid it gives me on, on the autocross especially. And on the road course this morning, I've been able to carry a gear higher than I was last year, and all we've changed was some things in the intake manifold. 102 millimeter throttle body, and then a custom four and a half inch cold air intake system that picks up underneath the headlights. Okay, let's go back to that inlet manifold. Yeah. You mentioned the adjustable length inlet runner, which I imagine is, is not overly common. I certainly haven't seen anything like that before. Yeah. The old theory, well, the general theory is the longer runner improves the bottom end performance, shorter runner improves top end performance. Obviously, there's a lot more to it in terms of the specifics, but yep. are you actually changing that runner length based on whether you're doing an autocross style event or something, road race that's a little bit faster? I'm not changing it that often. I'm changing it maybe once or twice a year. We did the dyno data at Lingenfelter to see what it did. And then I drove the car because as you mentioned, there's a lot more to it than just numbers. So I drove the car and what I felt actually reflected the dyno. And that is I liked the mid power range. And I felt that it's been the same for the last year. And another thing is when you're dealing with intake runners, the throttle body's in the front and the intake runners are, go from front to back. So it's not even necessarily that it's just the length, it's where it's at in the position. And that also affects whether you want a short or a long. We're not running uniform runners is what I'm getting at. 
Okay, fair enough. As I, as I said, there's a, there's a lot more to it. It's not right. not particularly black and white, but I just wanted to dig into that a little bit. You also mentioned the hydraulic roller cam profile. So hydraulic versus mechanical, you also alluded to the fact that mechanical cams need the valve lash checked and, and adjusted yeah. at a reasonable frequent uh, sort of intervals. Are there any downsides in you sticking to a hydraulic cam profile? If we want to rev the car higher, yeah. But at 8,000 RPM, I, the car does over 70 miles an hour in first gear. It, it carries power from four all the way to eight grand. I have the power band I need. Compression ratio. This is obviously one of yeah. the, the big elements in getting the best performance out of a naturally aspirated engine. And you know, within reason, again, there's not a lot of black and white here, but, but higher is generally better. But of course, then we come up against the octane of the fuel available. So what are you running in terms of compression? Yeah, I'm running a little over 14 to 1. As you mentioned with octane, that pretty much puts me at E85 most of the time, unless I want to run race gas. For a road course application like today, I run the Ignite Ready 90, which is rated a little over 110 octane. And the car absolutely loves that fuel. It's never had a miss. It's, it's pretty amazing. On a fuel that good with 14 to 1 compression, is knock even a consideration or are you able to tune to MBT with no concern about detonation? It really hasn't been a concern. Would be expected. Now you are flex fuel there as mm-hmm. well. Just pump gas for getting around in between tanks of ethanol or do you actually run it hard on pump as well? I never run it hard on pump. It's just not worth the risk to me. You know, at, at a car like this, even if I'm taking it to dinner, it's it's worth the extra six bucks or whatever it's going to be a gallon just to be on the safe side. And you never know when you're going to get on it, you know. I think it's called smiles per gallon when you've got a car like this, correct? Exactly. Engine management, what are you running there? Yeah, so we stuck with a GM-based computer. It's what comes in the newer C6 ZR1s and newer CTSV Cadillacs. So it's an E92 GM ECU. It has a lot more capability. The higher tooth reluctor wheel that didn't come in the C5 generation Corvettes, it allows us to run that now. And it has a lot of functionalities like that flex fuel, um, along with additional tables to control boost, which we can use to control maybe things in the future, like nitrous, if we ever have to. We haven't had to yet. Right now, we're doing pretty well. But if we ever have to, this motor could easily handle another 200 shot of nitrous and it is something that's in our back pocket. That decision with a competition based car to run factory engine management and I mean again it's very difficult now to sort of say this is a point where we must go aftermarket but I imagine most people in your situation would have picked an aftermarket standalone so what made you want to stick with the GM uh, controller? We definitely looked at the aftermarket a lot and we looked at numbers people were making with them and and I do a little bit of tuning, but primarily Lingenfelter does my tuning. They really like the factory style for their customers because it's simple. A lot more folks know how to tune it and use it. So what made me go with it was they were developing a new system that allows you to basically plug and play into this car, that new ECU system. It allows you to maintain your factory ABS. It allows you to use your factory fuse box. It's all plug and play and goes right into the car. And now you have all the benefits of the new ECU. So this was the first car that Kit went on. And when they approached me about it, it was when I was already looking at ECUs anyway, and it made the most sense. And drivability has been awesome. And you know, a factory ECU does do that very well. And it's been one of my favorite parts about this car. I think people sort of tend to believe they need to jump to an aftermarket standalone really early on in the piece and you've, you've proven that it's absolutely not the case. And the other part that's easy to sort of ignore with an aftermarket standalone is this one ECU is designed to be able to run thousands, just about any internal combustion engine that you could come across. So the strategies are very universal, whereas when you're dealing with a, a controller from GM, that's very narrow focused. All of the strategies, tables, etc., are developed around getting the best performance out of that engine. So quite often, drivability, as you mentioned, can be uh, easier 
to get right and better than some of the aftermarket standalones. You also mentioned the ABS system there, and this is quite interesting. I wanted to dive into this because you're no longer running the factory ABS, even though, as you mentioned, you could. Mm -hmm. What have you gone to? Yeah, so I swapped two years ago to the BMW MK60 ABS system. It's kind of the budget alternative that you always hear about on the internet, and it was really simple. I'm in the whole system for maybe $1,200, which compared to a Bosch where you're looking at close to 10, which I would love to have a Bosch. It's definitely definitely gets you the more performance. But from the factory, these cars are really known for when you get into slippery conditions, especially with big tires, big brakes, the ABS gets confused, you get a hard pedal, and it's a little unpredictable. The MK60, I had the CSL performance tune put in it. I know you can custom tune them. I've looked into that. I still might, but it got rid of all the weird quirks that the car had from the factory with the ABS. And now when I go to the pedal, I know exactly what I'm getting every time. So is it a full motorsport unit? No, but does it work really, really well for what I'm doing? Yes. Okay. Let's just talk a little bit more about what that system is and and where it comes from. This is available on a range of different cars, primarily BMW. Yeah, primarily BMW, um, I want to say 90s, early 2000s M3s. And the reason it's special is because it's really standalone. Most ABS units, like what come in this car, they need to speak to all the other units in the car, speak to the BCM, and that unit is standalone. I have its own check engine light for the ABS system, so a check ABS light, basically. And it doesn't speak to anything else. It's plugged into my dash that way, and other than that, it needs no data. Uh, in terms of adding the sensors that are required, is this a case of just buying a package of the uh, MK60 ECU pump, et cetera, all of the wheel speed sensors, and, and then making up a harness in between? Essentially, yes. Mounting the, the unit, it needs pressure from both front and rear lines, so putting that in. And then the newer style Corvettes, so 2009 and newer, I believe, that switched to Bosch style sensors, that hub works with the MK60 and that hub bolts right into this generation Corvette. So basically you just need to buy the newer style hubs and then you can run an MK60 and just use your factory sensors and just splice it in. Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com free and start developing your own skills today. All right, so I know that a lot of people watching right now are probably on the edge of their seats worried about your health and safety and the reliability of this uh, aftermarket or standalone ABS unit that you put in a car that it was never meant to be in. And I get the concern, obviously. You're dealing with a mission critical component here with the braking system. We want to rely on it. So you're telling me that that's not an issue first and foremost and what you have got is significantly better than what the factory Corvette braking system was. I would say significantly safer, not just better. It's just knowing what I'm going to get. Here at this course, it's a really long back straightaway. We're well over 150, 160-ish mile an hour. And it's a high-speed right that you barely slow down for. And the car would get light. And at the factory ABS, you'd go to the brake to drag it through the corner and the right inside wheel would detect a little bit of a lockup and then the pedal would get rock hard on you. Now you're in the middle of this high-speed sweeper where you need control of the brakes and now the pedal's hard. And this system has never even hinted at anything like that. It's been just very predictable, which in my mind means safety. Yeah, I get that. It makes perfect sense to me. I mean, we are going to be testing this system in one of our own in-house project cars because we've had a lot of people, both pros, and cons of the system or for and against the system, we want to get some actual hard data on it and find out for ourselves. Now, interesting, as part of that, I did notice you actually do have a residual pressure or a pressure-reducing valve plumbed into the system as well. So the ABS system acts as a, a bias, essentially, biasing the pressure front and rear as it's required. So I'm interested to know why you've also got the mechanical valve there. The mechanical valve's there 
again, the nice thing about the system is it doesn't need the other system. So if I ever did have an ABS failure, I have a switch in the car to turn the ABS off. And now I can adjust using the mechanical bias where the factory ABS system, if it went out, it put the car in reduced power mode anyway. But there was no way of you know, really stopping. The fact the factory bias is basically undrivable in these cars. You need some type of adjustment. So now I have the better ABS and if something does go wrong, I have a way to still drive the car. You know, I grew up driving cars without ABS, I would be okay. So I mean it's not gonna stop as well, but it's going to at least get you back to the pits. Oh no, I would still race. <laughs> it would be fine. In terms of, of the performance of the ABS system as well, because this is another element where people will sort of say, well, it takes away from the driver involvement, and, and absolutely it does. In terms of the people who want to say, well, the ABS system can't break as well as a competent driver, have you got any sort of uh, pearls of wisdom there? Yeah, you are a one-channel brake system. When you let off the brake pedal, all four brake calipers release, and when you get on the brakes, all four go. This is a four-channel ABS. So if I'm on an autocross, which is where I more have these types of situations, and you're straddling two different surfaces, which happens all the time in autocross, and one side is much dirtier than the other, or maybe one side got rain the day before and, and washed things onto it, and the other side didn't get dirty, now you have way more braking on one side of the car than the other, and this can adjust for that. Or that high-speed sweeper I was mentioning where the right rear inside gets light, it cannot apply as much pressure to that one wheel and apply more to the outsides. You can't do that as a driver. I think the argument that I always hear about ABS is that a, a really good driver can stop faster. I mean, yeah, if, if you're Max Verstappen yeah. or Lewis Hamilton, then, then chances are, yeah, you, you probably can, but we aren't. And as you mentioned there, the, the variable conditions as right. well. It's not a case of you know, stopping perfectly as quickly as you can under yeah. perfect conditions. We're yeah. not under those conditions. So yeah, the ABS can, in most yeah. instances, do a better job. You'd agree with that? Max would have ABS if he could. I like Max. He's a hell of a driver. He would have ABS if he could because he can't, again, control all four wheels at once and, and a computer can't. In a flat road on perfectly grippy conditions, yes, could he probably outbreak any ABS? Sure. But you're never going just straight on the brakes. Not, not on a road course. And, and we're probably not expecting a contract anytime soon from no. uh, Red Bull Racing. So it's probably a bit of a moot point. Sure. Look, great to get some insight into the car and it's only partway through the competition. We wish you all the best for backing up your win from last year. Cheers for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to help us getting the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe. It's a one-stop shop when it comes to going faster, stopping quicker and cornering better.